This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Jane Brown, in for Libby Snymer. The Canadian Medical Association is taking the Supreme Court's decision on assisted dying very seriously. Members have been polled extensively on the subject as they look to create policy going forward. Today I'll be joined by the CMA's president, Dr. Chris Simpson. Plus, did you know that Zoomers are one of the fastest-growing demographics of motorcycle riders? It's an exhilarating hobby, but whether you're hopping on a bike for the first time ever or the first time in a long time, it's important to keep safety first and make sure you know your equipment. Today, I'll talk with motorcycle enthusiast and retired OPP officer Bob Patterson. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Last week, we told you Jimmy Carter had been diagnosed with cancer that had spread through his body. It was discovered during surgery on his liver, but at the time, all other details were vague. This week, the former U.S. president announced he's undergoing radiation treatment for cancer on multiple spots in his brain. Still, Carter is leaving open the possibility of making his annual trip to Nepal in November to help build houses for Habitat for Humanity. A B.C. Zoomer heading to Ontario for a family wedding was turned back at the airport because of his titanium hip. Robert Hart from Terrace, B.C. was heading to Ontario with his wife on July 27th when his hip triggered the metal detector at the airport. The Canadian Air Transport Security Authority employee, a woman, refused to pat him down since he was a member of the opposite sex. She told him he would have to wait until one of the two male employees, one of whom was on vacation, were back on shift. What's even more unbelievable is that Terrace, B.C. is a fairly small town, and Robert Hart even knew some of the other agents personally. He reminded them he had his hip replaced as he was going through physiotherapy, but even that didn't help. In the end, the couple was delayed nine hours before getting through security. They were able to make the wedding, and the CATSA has since acknowledged what happened was a mistake. They say there is a policy that pat-downs should be of the same gender, but in the event someone of the same sex can't be found, the on-duty agent must screen the passenger. Singer and activist Harry Belafonte is receiving a great honor. Belafonte will join Academy Award-winning actress Gina Davis as the headliners among the winners of this year's Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Awards. The former heavyweight champion is focused on humanitarian causes since leaving the ring and is scheduled to attend the September 19th ceremony in his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Belafonte will receive the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Award for Lifetime Achievement for his contributions to civil rights. And Gina Davis will receive the Humanitarian of the Year Award for her efforts to promote gender equality. 
Yvonne Craig, who played Batgirl in the 1960s Batman TV series, passed away this week at the age of 78. As a trained dancer, Yvonne Craig did her own stunts as the female version of the Cape Crusader. Her post-Batman TV stint lasted several years and spanned many of the hit shows of the time, including The Six Million Dollar Man and Mod Squad. Yvonne Craig also wrote a memoir called From Ballet to the Batcave and Beyond and was publicly vocal about her support for free mammograms for women who can't afford them. She fought breast cancer for two years before her death. The cancer metastasized to her liver and she died Monday in her home in Pacific Palisades. I'm Jane Brown and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. End-of-life care and doctor-assisted death are priority issues as members of the Canadian Medical Association hold their 148th annual meeting in Halifax this coming week. To be presented during the conference, a summary report of 545 comments posted by CMA members on fundamental issues surrounding a framework for assisted dying, which has been legalized by the Supreme Court of Canada. Dr. Chris Simpson is president of the Canadian Medical Association. He joins me on the line. Dr. Simpson, what questions were asked of doctors about physician-assisted death? Well, what we did was um, we, we started the whole process of consultation about a year and a half ago. And uh, we, we went to the public first uh, because we wanted to really understand some of the individual stories um, around end-of-life care in general, about the state of palliative care, and uh, around uh, assisted dying in, in particular. And uh, that really greatly uh, informed the start of our, of our deliberations. And then we began consulting physicians as well, both uh, online and in person in various different uh, forums. And uh, that helped us uh, in combination with studying other jurisdictions who've uh, legalized assisted dying uh, to put together a framework, an actual uh, kind of manual, if you will, of, of, of how this could actually look on the ground uh, rather than just speaking in, in the abstract. And then we sent that framework out to, uh, to our membership to, to see what they thought. There are some who uh, individually oppose participating in, in assisted dying. And what was really interesting was they weren't so much trying to uh, obstruct uh, patients' right to access what is going to become a legal service, but they were just more concerned that they were going to be coerced or compelled to be complicit in that. And so um, what really emerged, I think, as a theme was for those who uh, conscientiously object, how are we going to um, uh, respect that without impeding access to, to the service by patients uh, who are el- uh, eligible. And that's where I expect most of the discussion next week will revolve around. And this discussion, will there be a resolution to this? Will there be some sort of, um, will there be some sort of uh, decision made moving forward on the position by the CMA? Yes, I, I think that is certainly our intention. Um, as you know, there is a federal panel and a provincial and territorial panel which um, will be looking at uh, exactly how to implement uh, medical aid in dying because let's not forget, this is something that is happening whether people want it to or not. The Supreme Court has struck down the law uh, banning uh, uh, medical aid in dying. So it, it, uh, it's in everybody's best interest for us to have clarity and uh, you know some set of rules around uh, how this is actually going to work. But my view, I think, is that 
the, the, the sticking point is going to be this notion of, of referral. And uh, so for conscientious objectors, uh, are they going to be obliged to refer to somebody else mm-hmm. um, uh, who is willing to carry it out? Or do they refer to a neutral third party? Or do we facilitate self-referral? Um, all of these things, I think, will be discussed. And that is an interesting part of all of this, that if you are philosophically against the idea of facilitating uh, dying and helping a patient ease their suffering by dying, do doctors feel a responsibility then that they have to transfer this patient or will their own views block that transfer? Right, and that, that's really the, the sticking point because what we heard back from some doctors uh, uh, who were opposed personally to assisted dying is they would say very definitively, I want nothing to do with this, but I have no right to prevent my patient from, uh, from accessing this if they're eligible. Then there are others who say, well, even the act of referral to somebody that I know is then going to carry out assisted dying, that referral in itself violates my conscience. What about palliative care? I mean, the, the whole issue of physician-assisted dying uh, revolves around suffering and pain and quality of end of life. Uh, does, does improving palliative care weigh into this at all? Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm really glad you brought that up because we, we really wanted uh, to conduct our public consultations um, in that broader context. Um, the fact that only about 16% of all patients in Canada who would benefit from palliative care actually get it is a big problem. And I think people quite rate, rightly raise concerns that, um, uh, you know, that people may request medical aid in dying because they don't have access to palliative care. And I think that's something none of us want to see happen. Um, but I think, um, you know, when you do talk about uh, assisted dying, um, the, the, the issue of palliative care always comes up because um, a physician who is, is going to be considering helping a patient to, to die is, is going to be required and compelled and I think would naturally um, ensure that all of the palliative care options have been uh, exhausted. And the other really interesting thing about that is that in, in other countries and, and jurisdictions, including some American states where assisted dying is legal, um, the, the majority of people who are granted um, you know, permission to uh, carry out assisted dying actually don't carry it out. They, they derive comfort from mm-hmm. the fact that they have that choice, but then as their, their care proceeds and they get good palliative care, they discover that they don't need it and they die naturally. But, but the fact that it's an option for them helps them to maintain that control and in so doing, uh, preserve their dignity. Thank you for your thoughtful comments and all the best at the conference this coming week. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Chris Simpson, president of the Canadian Medical Association. I'm Jane Brown, in for Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Next time you're out on the road, take a good look at that flock of motorcyclists going past you. Chances are a number of them are Zoomers. In just a moment, I'll be joined by motorcycling guru, Sergeant Bob Patterson, to talk Zoomers, bikes, and safety. Some Zoomers are spending their spare time embracing the passion of riding motorcycles. They may have been doing it since they were teenagers. Others are taking up the hobby years later. But there's one commonality. In order to enjoy the motorcycling experience fully, safety is key. Bob Patterson is a retired OPP officer and now a safety and security specialist with the McLennan Group Insurance. He's also a contributor to the Motorcycle Times. Bob joins me in studio. Bob, you are an avid motorcyclist. What is it about riding a motorcycle that you personally enjoy? 
Boy, that's a tough one. It's so complex. Uh, there's, a, there's a bit of mental freedom when you're zooming down the road, you know, the wind on your face kind of effect. Um, I like that. Um, it's been compared to a dog hanging their head out of the window of the car. The, the open air and the breeze does something to you emotionally, and I think that's quite true. It, it's also, although you have to concentrate, it's a nice time for sort of mental reflection too. Uh, like maybe downhill skiing might be a good thing to it seems to me when I'm on my bike cruising down the road nice weather it's very good uh, mentally of course a huge social uh, component too in terms of riding with other Mm, people right and getting together as older people in a social activity which is different than maybe what you've been used to and when we'll talk about the zoomers Mm -hmm. who are coming to motorcycling in their midlife years Mm -hmm. but some of today's zoomers on motorcycles are the peter fondas and dennis hoppers of yesteryear right they've been riding all of this time oh you and and adapted to the changes in the motorcycles and and would they be the best people to or the safest the most experienced on the road uh very likely Uh, these people who have been riding sometimes started on a dirt bike when they're a child or a teenager and then have progressed up and now have the big cruiser or even a sport bike um, they are, cert- I would say, the most confident and the safest, the most talented riders out there. And they probably have an excellent safety record, or they might not still be doing it after all this time, right? That's true. Well, the, the not doing it anymore, you know, we might talk about this, is the returning rider. You know, someone who did ride the dirt bike, but haven't ridden for 40 years and getting back into it. So that is a phenomenon as well. You get to be 60 and you think, oh, I remember riding a bike when I was in my teens. I'll just get right back on it and get out there. That's not necessarily a good idea. No, it really isn't. Um, So what we do like to encourage is that even if you may think that you're a talented comfortable rider, it's really best. Frankly, it's critical uh, to get back into a two or three day training program. There's no way around it. I think you're making a big mistake if you think you can just jump back on the bike. And that is the only way around it, right? I mean, you have to have the training. You have to have the special license to ride a motorcycle on the roads in Ontario. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's right. You, you have to go through the M system. Uh, but even taking one step back, you need to listen to those instructors. Let's talk about safety. Um, and and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the stats, uh, particularly the most recent ones from the OPP this year that say there have been 25 motorcycle-related deaths so far. And of those, 15 involve people between the ages of 45 and 65. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think it prob- it's a very accurate reflection of what's going on. Um, uh, my casual ob- observation would be this. There's a component of collisions involving a relatively young rider on a very powerful modern sport bike. On the flip side, there's the people my age, 60 and up, who are either uh, discovering motorcycling for the first time or returning to the motorcycling. You need the small displacement beginner bike. And there are there other factors, other areas we should stay away from to keep us as safe as possible when riding? Oh, yeah, you're bang on, Jane. You could eliminate two-thirds of those crashes if you think about three primary components, no booze or drugs, proper training, and the third thing is a familiar bike and get proper insurance. You say proper insurance. Is there some issue with people not having insurance when riding yeah, motorcycles? If, if uh, the Compulsory in- Automobile Insurance Act, uh, of course, dictates that we need insurance for our car, for a motorcycle. If there's a horrible crash, um, the investigation often re- reveals not the rider's motorcycle, 
They have no license and they have no insurance. Is there an age at which you should be hanging up your keys and saying, I've had my days as a motorcyclist, (laughs) it's time to try something else? (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess you're right. Uh, Exactly what age that is would be tough to nail down. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, I just turned 60 and I noticed that I can no longer ride my motorcycle at night. You just don't, even with glasses and stuff, and I don't have a huge vision problem, you don't have the the acuity you once had. And 60 is considered young these days, right? Basically, yeah, but I would like to ride for another 20 years, so I'm going to look after myself now. Yeah. The second thing is you might want to change the motorcycle. I just sold my rocket of a 600cc sport bike, which I don't need anymore. I just have no business leaning that bike over on the ramps to the 401 anymore. It's something I used to enjoy, not anymore. Uh, And with my current motorcycle, I'm even thinking I like it, so I'll keep it for, I hope, 15 years. I might put a sidecar on it when I can no longer hold the blessed thing up. Great advice. Very informative. Thanks for coming in, Bob. Thank you for having me, Jane. Bob Patterson is a retired OPP officer and a safety and security specialist with the McLennan Group Insurance, Inc. I'm Jane Brown, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. He knows when to hold them, when to fold them, and this week he celebrated his 77th birthday. In just a moment, we'll be back with the music of Kenny Rogers. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your International Arts Datebook, tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Bob Comsick. First to New York, where you can experience a bit of Mexico. Frida Kahlo Art Garden Life is at the New York Botanical Garden, an exhibition highlighting the iconic artist's engagement with nature in her native country. It's on until October 30th. Now to France. The Palace of Versailles hosting a major exhibition by renowned artist Anish Kapoor, exploring heaven and earth, shadow and light in the gardens of Versailles, also until the end of October. And over in Scotland, Edinburgh's a city of festivals in full swing. There's the famous Fringe Festival, the Royal Military Tattoo, the Big Arts Festival, the International Book Festival, World Music and Dance Festival, all continuing until the end of August. That's the International Arts Datebook. I'm Bob Compsey. This week, Kenny Rogers celebrated his 77th birthday. Although Rogers is best known to country audiences, he's charted more than 120 hit singles across various musical genres. He's topped the country and pop album charts for more than 200 weeks in the United States alone and has sold over 100 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling musical artists of all time. But even with countless hit singles, his name is synonymous with one hit. You're probably singing it already. The Gambler. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere. That was Kenny Rogers and The Gambler. Rogers celebrated his 77th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Jane Brown. Thank you so much for joining me today. Libby Snymer returns next week. Be sure to stay tuned and stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandrill. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. 
Heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.